Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Dharma Toolkit with me, Chandra Dasa, joined today by some good friends who we'll talk about in a minute, including some of our team on the podcast. This is a special episode coming at the end of Earth Week, which is kind of like Earth Day, but stretched over a whole week, which we're marking, celebrating, noticing on the Buddhist Centre Online all week. We're quite excited, really, because we've been working on this series of podcasts for about a year, I think, over the whole piece. And they've now aired. Hopefully you've had a chance to listen to one of them, two of them, possibly all three of them. And you've heard evocations all week of Buddhist responses to climate crisis, climate change, from the perspectives of ethics, meditation and wisdom. And so this is our special episode of the podcast to wrap up the week and to welcome to the show the person who made those special episodes for us, Mary Salome, who we'll say hello to in a little minute. But first, welcome to my colleague, friend, team member, Sadai Sihi, who's been with us through these podcasts. How are you doing this Friday, Sadai Sihi? I'm well, thanks, Chandrasa. Coming to the end of this Earth Week. Yeah, and uh, actually it feels like it's been quite a rich week exploring this, the themes that have come up around Earth Week. We're about just to move into a new phase, which is our home retreat, which is on the Brahma Viharas, which you could say are meditations on different aspects of love. And somehow that feels deeply connected. One of the things I've been starting to reflect on in terms of loving kindness in the Brahma Viharas is this whole idea of interconnectedness. And that's already been emerging, actually, when I were up in this week, just the different themes certainly been talked about on Mary's podcast. So it feels just a nice ending slash beginning Ending of one thing, beginning of something else. Looking forward to discussing this a bit more. And joining us for the conversation to help us draw out the themes that Stiasiki just evoked is Parni, who's also been a somewhat irregular guest on the podcast, but is going to join the podcast team now and help us for the foreseeable future, which is very exciting. Also manages to maintain the stranglehold of Scotland on the whole shebang. Welcome, Parmi. How are you doing today? Hi, Chandadasa. And... Sadia so Sihi and Mary. Yeah, I'm all right, actually. I'm still in my 11th floor flat in Glasgow. It's interesting thinking about Earth Day, when you're quite a long way, technically quite a long way above the Earth. But I've been very aware of it through this week. I've been doing quite a bit of poetry reading and reading around the theme and really appreciated the podcast. I thought it was a great way to move into that using the threefold path of ethics, meditation and wisdom. So I enjoyed that structure very much. I guess the biggest thing for me this week is that this is the week that our ordination retreat would have started in Spain, the three-month retreat that I was going to be leading. So on Monday night, we had a little ritual to mark that. And when parts of the ritual was to share something meaningful for yourself. And I actually read a poem which struck me as being quite relevant for this. It was good to actually read something that put the earth itself into a bigger perspective, kind of gave a bit of a cosmic perspective. And that's something I've really appreciated. In all of the podcasts this week, I appreciated it in the early one with Sarah and Akupa, given that sense of huge time perspective and you know looking back and looking forward so I'm good I'm actually enjoying the lockdown being more introverted than usual. Whenever I hear you report in partly from your 11th floor apartment flat it's now taken on some sort of slightly mythic dimension in my head it's like you know this Mahayana Sutra where you just live <laughs> above the city in Glasgow and bestow blessings on people from there. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, that would be a nice thing to do. Excellent. And that was good that you mentioned the podcast at the start of the week with our friends Cooper and Sarah, because this episode is sort of bookending that. That was the pathway into Mary's lovely exploration of ethics, meditation and wisdom. And here we are at the other side with the lady herself in person. Not only is she in San Francisco and I'm willing to get up at quite an early hour to do a podcast, but actually Mary's been a good friend of mine for quite a long time. We must have known each other for ages at this point, at least possibly 15 years, something like that. Yeah, it's a real delight to be joined by you today, Mary. How are you doing, whatever you are, psychically, physically? I'm doing well. I'm sitting on my couch in San Francisco with my dog beside me. It's a beautiful day and I have been similar to Parmi, having a relatively pleasant lockdown experience, although it's weird to call it that because of what we're witnessing, looking out, everything that's happening. But my personal circumstances are very good and I'm well and all my friends and family are well. I guess there's a lot to say about what's happening with the coronavirus, but probably don't need to go into all of it because there are better resources for it than me babbling on and on. And is your dog feeling okay through the kind of strangeness where all your dog's humans are behaving differently or doing differently? Yeah, he loves it because we're home all the time. Yeah. I guess I should say I live with my partner. He's actually downstairs sewing masks. He's learned how to sew. He works in construction. So he taught himself, or I showed him the ropes, but actually then he just kind of figured all the stuff that I learned from my mom about how to sew. He's like, no, I'm not using scissors. I'm just cutting all the fabric with a razor blade. I'm like, well, I would never have done that. So anyway, it's interesting. But also he's finding that sitting at a desk is really hard. And that's something that I've learned how to do in my work. Sitting at a computer all the time is how to sit properly. And people who don't do it, they're in a lot of pain, I guess, from sitting. But I guess I could say a little bit about what I do since people might not know. So I work at a university, which is a medical school, University of California, San Francisco. I've been there over 20 years. I'm a web developer on a project about HIV and AIDS. And so we work on multiple websites, primarily funded by the federal government that help bring resources to providers and people living with HIV and AIDS. I've, since the early 90s, had a avocation doing radio. I was trained at a radio station called KPFA, which is listener-sponsored radio in Berkeley, California, as an apprentice. At the time, it was a two-year apprenticeship program, unpaid, but you got trained in everything, soup to nuts for doing radio. And I still do radio production for them. But then after tools became more accessible from your own home, you don't have to go to a studio. I started doing other kinds of productions, not just for radio, just my own kind of for fun. And it was a natural fit to help a little bit with Free Buddhist Audio years ago by digitizing some stuff. And then that sort of started the path toward doing these podcasts. Yeah. And you are a member of the Sangha with the San Francisco community, right? Yes. In the Mission District and the lovely little center there that they have. Yeah. I've been attending there since the late 90s and I became a Mitra around 2008. I have a chronic illness. And when I started to have symptoms that I didn't understand before I had a diagnosis, a lot of the training that I had been doing at the Buddhist center started to settle in a new way and a more embodied way. Oh, this is what they meant by impermanence. And so that led to me entering the ordination process. I was actually going to be ordained this spring and we're delaying because of COVID-19 and I don't know when that'll happen and that's fine. I've been in the ordination process so long that another year or whatever isn't really, doesn't seem like that long. So, 
So we've done some audio work together in the past, as you say, with Freebooters Audio, particularly in digitization. But it's been a long conversation, hasn't it? But how could we do some other stuff? And it finally came to some fruition this week, I suppose. But it's been quite a long process of producing this and planning it and talking through how it would work, particularly in relationship to some of the other conversations that have been ongoing on the Buddhist Centre Online about climate change, climate crisis, etc. When we first started this conversation, why were you particularly interested in using that medium of sound and sound collage particularly to explore these themes? I guess early last year, I found myself struggling with, I've learned now they call climate anxiety. I didn't know that word at the time. And I actually turned to Free Buddhist Audio and I found this incredible talk by Akupa. On Monday, I learned that because I didn't know how to say it. And we have a rainy season retreat here. And I brought the talk and a bunch of us listened to it as a group. And it inspired a lot of people. In fact, I remember one of my friends saying she thought it was a perfect talk. It's on deep ecology. It's on deep ecology. And we decided that we wanted to do something. And there was Buddhist Action Month coming up in the summer. So we kind of had a slot set aside for doing something on deep ecology or climate. And between the initial listening session and Buddhist Action Month, I went on a solitary retreat. My private preceptor is Vimala Sara. She knows me and she said, do you have a stack of books by the door? And I said, yes, I do. And she said, well, just bring one. So I chose A Buddhist Response to the Climate Emergency, edited by John Stanley, David Roy, and Kirame Dorje. It's a collection of essays about climate from the point of view of Buddhists, but it also includes some science. It's about a decade old, so the science is dated, but it was still incredibly useful to have with me. I did bring a couple of other books, but they weren't to read. They were resources for doing puja. So one by Diramati, I believe, a collection of pujas that's used at Buddha Field. So anyway, I'm on solitary about two hours north of San Francisco in the summertime. It happens to be incredibly hot. It's 90 degrees. And I'm sitting there reading for a week a book about climate change. It was over 90 degrees. So I had a lot of time to really be in my body with the experience of the feelings of grief and fear and everything else that arose as I read the book and just lived in a very simple way where I had no distraction from everything that was coming up. And this was actually pretty intentional because I had experienced climate as this sort of like mosquito buzzing around my head for a long time that I just kept swatting away. And I put myself in conditions where I wouldn't be able to turn away from everything, the topic or my feelings about it. I was doing a lot of meditation and I was doing simple pujas. And at one point toward the end of the retreat, I had this recognition of my internal experience as familiar from previous retreats where we had studied the Satipatthana Sutta. And I recognized that what was coming up for me was anxiety. There's a certain phrasing for the kind of anxiety, restlessness and worry. It was just, this was my habitual response to things. And that what I was struggling with was as much the circumstances as my habitual response of restlessness and worry. And that I was bringing that to everything I was trying to do around climate. And what if I could bring something else to climate change besides my terror or, you know, projections. Everything just kind of opened up about what I could be doing. And I also realized on that retreat that because I had that puja book with me, the five Buddha mandala had been there the whole time. And I hadn't even thought of bringing the problem to the mandala in a way, and that that could be an incredible resource for me. So I started to do pujas 
I rewrote some of the pujas from the book specifically about climate change. And we did the puja when I got back in Buddhist Action Month and we formed this green sangha. You know, a dozen people or so who are interested meet once a month. There's sort of this collective energy around doing things related to climate. And we've gone to demonstrations together, peaceful protests. We've watched movies. We've had guest speakers come and talk to us on Zoom. Yeah, thanks for that. That's interesting me to hear a bit more of your background. That talk by Cooper, I think I know, well, I've heard quite a lot of his talks, but I think I know the one you're actually talking about. So he and I in the past have done quite a bit of work together around not just climate, but the kind of travails of the world, I suppose. We've done quite a bit of stuff based on Joanna Macy's work that reconnects together. He's calmer than I am. So I think he brings a very lovely calmness. But that calmness is quite deceptive because actually some of the things he's telling you are quite a blow if you really allow them to come in. But the way he does it is so kind of gentle and kind that you find yourself kind of going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, whoa, suddenly you realise that's quite a big fact. So interesting that that was a starter for you in a certain sort of way, Mary. And also interesting to hear you talk about how you deal with anxiety. And I guess that came through a bit in the podcast about meditation people being able to really turn towards their experience rather than deny it or kind of get overwhelmed by it. It's hard to find that middle way, isn't it? There's something about voices that I wanted to pick up there, pardon me, because I suppose the podcasts are a collection of voices. It's just like people vocalising their response. And we were joking a bit with Akapa about how lovely his voice is on Monday. But actually, I think that's quite important that you hear... It's like you hear another human being speaking to you. It's not a lecture. It's not a piece of heaviness. It's the human being having a response. I like the aspect of the podcast around turning towards. It's a dynamic motion. Sometimes you're really turned towards. Sometimes you're half looking to the side, you know. There's some very sort of human about that. Chandra, also you asked what was it like to do the interviews and some of them seemed a little spicy. Actually, it was all very easy. I know all these people for the most part and we're friendly. So it was interesting. Yeah. I guess what I would say is, you know, I did the interviews and when I was doing them, I was feeling more concerned about logistics, you know, okay, I got one done. I need to get a certain number done. I want to have a good mix of people. I want to get people from this point of view and that point of view. And I really didn't say no to anyone. I just sent out emails and everybody who responded, I recorded them. I wasn't able to use all the interviews that I did because they just didn't fit in one of the buckets. And originally I wanted to do four pieces, but then I didn't have time. It wasn't until I started doing the editing that I started to really hear them. It became harder to dismiss some of the people that I disagreed with or the comments that I disagreed with. I started to feel tremendous gratitude toward them. And then it became especially the people that I disagreed with because they had trusted me to record them and treat their words with respect. And they made the podcast better because it's more well-rounded if not everyone's coming from the same point of view. So it became a meta practice editing the audio. And I was working with it a really long time. So it was almost like a soup that cooks for a long time and tastes better because it's been sitting there. For me, it became better as I worked with it. One of the things I really struck by, Mary, when I was listening to the series of podcasts was, well, I suppose the natural tendency is to want to get an answer, particularly on something like this. Oh, great. Here's a podcast about the Buddhist response to this really big issue. And whatever your feelings are around that, it's maybe there'll be some answers here. And perhaps not unsurprisingly, there aren't really any answers 
from this, again, is a collection of voices and different people's perspectives. And I felt like that was a real kind of teaching there. We were always searching for certainty, searching for the answer and the thing that we will do, saying I will do next. And while people did bring in quite a lot of different things that they are doing, and it was reducing waste, reducing international travel, all these various ideas, which are often the things we get caught up on, that wasn't really the answer. There's something about just witnessing people's response to the situation and how some people were taking a much more hopeful stance. Some people were much more on the despairing side, but people were somehow bringing in the Dharma, their Buddhist practice to bear on, on all of those things. Yeah, that just felt really rich. And it felt really rich actually to be left with that experience rather than be given some kind of nice answers of next thing I need to do is X, Y or Z. So I really appreciated that actually. You mentioned international travel there, Sadiasi Heen. I was interested right at the beginning of the ethics podcast where there was quite a bit of discussion around, well, I'm paraphrasing this and in a way I'm putting it from the angle that I'm interested in, but there was discussion around how do we remain an international community and work with the fact that, you know, flying around the globe is contributing. Some people think it's contributing massively. Some people think it contributes less massively than we think, you know, but whatever one's feeling about that is, you know, we are doing that. I was quite interested in that part of the podcast. And again, as Sadiasi, he said, nobody's got an answer to that. Well, I don't know MD that's got the definitive answer to that. But one of the things I've been aware of from a few years ago when I worked in the International Order Office was trying to really encourage local situations to make more of what they've got there. So, for example, doing a Pan-American convention, which still includes some travel, obviously, but not always necessarily assuming that everybody around the globe is going to fly to Britain, you know, for something international. But I'm left still with the question because I do international travel partly because of the function that I hold within the Spanish-speaking world. I do travel to... Mexico and Venezuela and it's very hard because it's like you're in the one hand trying to balance hopefully the good that one does as a Dharma teacher in situations where there's a real need for that and on the other hand the fact that it entails flying about the planet. I do do carbon offsetting but I sometimes wonder really if that's enough and you know should I just stop it? I've no answer to that but I was interested that it came up as obviously something that people feel strongly about and think about. I think it's great that we're thinking about it. One of the things I found really useful actually was, I can't remember who was saying it, maybe it was a woman called Nancy, just having this perspective of time. And I think she was talking about, gosh, I hope this is a podcast, about the smoking ban and how in her lifetime, she couldn't possibly have conceived from the 70s, I think she mentioned, that, you know, in the 2000s that they would be reducing smoking so dramatically. And there's something about having that perspective that we just can't imagine what possible solutions there could be. And I guess I'm really struck by it because I don't quite know when you did all the recording for this, but I suspect it was a good few months ago before all this coronavirus situation broke out. And here we are in the situation where we aren't doing any international travel. In fact, we're hardly even doing any local travel. And somehow we're still managing to have a sense of an international community. as kind of almost unimaginable. I mean, it's not that that wasn't a possibility, like even last year, but just nobody was, nobody was doing it. So, I mean, I, I don't know, something about that, I take it maybe even inspiration that we just don't know what might emerge. Maybe that's just a hopeful perspective on, on the whole situation. Appreciated that voice, actually just bringing that perspective in, the long, the time perspective. 
I think that's a great point. Sadaisahi, in the conversation we had with Viveka and Upayadi, this didn't actually make it into the edit, but there was one bit where we were talking about Ursula Le Guin, or sometimes Ursula K. Le Guin. She made this famous speech not that long before she died, where she was challenging the notion that it was hopeless to engage imaginatively with fantasies of other kinds of society. Quite often her speculative fiction writing is full of, in a way, interesting explorations of how societies organise themselves. It's not just at the level of story, there's something deeper going on. And she makes this point that only a matter of a few hundred years ago, nobody questioned the divine right of kings. It was just like hardwired into human culture and society. And actually here we are. So when people look at late stage capitalism, and think it's unassailable as a way to live. And then actually how quickly that can move and that point you make about our sense of what's possible in terms of human connection and human sangha, human community as Buddhists. And there's been complete upheaval in it just in a matter of five weeks or something. Do you remember Star Trek, you know, when people spoke to each other on little devices that they set up in front of them and they had these conversations across the galaxy? Ha ha, here we are across, you know, two continents and... Quite a big distance between even the two of you and the North American continent. There's definitely fantastic things that can be done doing this. I guess for myself, because I'm working ordaining people, that's a wee bit harder online. We haven't yet managed to do an ordination online. We've done ordinations streamed so that people can tune into them. But I haven't managed to put a case around MD's neck via Zoom yet. There is a piece of this that I didn't mention earlier, which has to do with Nancy and Arya Drishti. And how I met Nancy was she lives in Maine and she came last year to an ordination training retreat at Dharmadara in California. And unbeknownst to me, she had had this exchange with Arya Drishti about climate and travel. And when I came back from my solitary retreat, I was just like, I want to do something. And I proposed that we do carbon offsets. Well, Nancy was already on it and she had brought all her experience as a professor in business to the problem and had done this huge spreadsheet analyzing the different options for carbon offsets. And so we ended up suggesting one to the group for use for future travel. And there's a lot to work out about whether that will actually happen, but it just seems like it's better than nothing. If we are going to travel, I think it makes sense to do them when we can. And I have offsets that I've had forever just for about town carbon that I put out there. So there are different places that you can sign up for where they'll take your contribution and put it toward offsetting carbon for the average amount that you put into the atmosphere for your daily life. The other piece that I'll share is the accountability of having a group who's concerned about this. For me, my car was declared a total loss when it was hit on the street by a who knows who. I came out one morning and it was destroyed. And luckily no one was in it and no one was injured, but I found myself in the position of needing to get a new car. And my initial feeling was I can't afford a hybrid or electric car. So I'm going to be stuck getting this gas car. And then I just thought, you know what? I'm just deciding I'm not getting a gas car. I'm getting a hybrid. And so I found a way to do it that I could afford, which was to buy a used car from a rental agency that it was a lease return. So it was a few years old. It's in perfect condition. I can afford the payment. And I got a car that lines up better with what I think I should be doing right now. And this came up in the conversation 
that you played on Monday about people's relationship to the earth and future generations. I think another piece of my motivation in this is that I don't have children and I feel like I want to give something to young people and I'm not in direct relationship with raising them. And so this is something that I can do for future generations. I won't be able to do it later. You know, there is time to intervene. And I feel like it does matter, even if these are small personal choices, if we're all doing them, then they could have an impact. Just going to pick up on what Mary was saying about a group of people and accountability. Just reminded me that last year at the Glasgow Buddhist Centre, where I'm now based, we ran a series of things called Carbon Conversations which is a worldwide movement, actually, and you can get a facilitator to do it. So women came and did it. We're a group of eight of us from the Sangha, and we met over six meetings. And each meeting we looked at when was transport, when was stuff, you know, like the clothes you buy, etc. household waste. There was six different topics and she had games that we did and stuff. It was very non-judgmental. It was quite fun, actually. And I was quite surprised because I think I'm quite well informed around the climate issue. And I learned a heck of a lot about some things that I thought were kind of harmless were much worse than I realised they were. And some things that I had been, you know, trying to put effort into actually were having less effect than I thought they were. So I'd recommend it as a way of, if people are interested, a group called Carbon Conversations. That's definitely something that our Sangha has been engaged with. We've been involved in Buddhist Action Month as well for, gosh, I think for a good few years now. It's definitely something that we've been trying to engage with a bit more. And we did go through the process. There's the Sustainable Centre Certificate. So we started off on that. Actually, it was interesting about that. We kind of stalled with it because some of the criteria didn't really kind of work in our setup. So one of the things they were asking for in order to get certified was to have 100% green electricity supplier. And at the time in Ireland, there wasn't any. So we were kind of stuck. We were trying to get in touch with the electricity supplier to ask them about this, but obviously that kind of didn't go very far and we got sort of passed off for a while. But yeah, I mean, definitely even just taking that process. I mean, just interesting what you were saying about the carbon conversations, part because it felt a little bit like that. We were kind of doing an audit, an energy audit of the centre. And there's something about that and that whole process of Buddhist Action Month as well, more generally. I'm interested in that because I know some people kind of question what benefit is there on doing an event like that. But for me, it was definitely something important about doing things as a Sangha. It's not our individual response. It's our response to Sangha. And for me, when I think of an issue like this, and I think of all the overwhelm that inevitably comes up, because as soon as you talk about climate change, really get into issues of biodiversity, you get into issues of injustice, you get into so much other issues, it's impossible to kind of disentangle. It's so easy to get overwhelmed. And for me, there's something about knowing that you're in this with other people, that it's not up to you, which I think we very easily fall into thinking it's, it's, oh my God, it's all down to me and I can't do this. You know, you're part of something bigger. That just gives me a lot of hope. So that's one of the reasons I really value the fact that our Sangha has been taking part in Buddhist Action Month these past few years. Obviously, we could do more, but that's definitely a really good starting point. And to be having those conversations and not to be turning away from these conversations. Sort of like what you were talking about in your solitary, Mary, you know. It's easy to kind of have the sort of, that's a global issue. Um, here's me with my practice. But I was really struck by what you said about that, you know, in terms of how you were relating to it. You were bringing the stuff that you practice with on a day-to-day basis to that issue as well. And if you were able to do that differently in terms of your personal practice, it has an effect on that issue. And I don't know, it just sort of frees up creativity, which is what we talk about when we talk about Buddhist practice, isn't it? You know, 
trying to have a more creative mind, creative response to everything. That's a great point about Buddhist Action Month. We'll put a link in the show notes to where you can sign up for that. It happens every June and they usually have quite a focus on the Buddhist Centre Online about it. And you can expect the same this year. Of course, it's going to be a slightly different occasion because we may all well still be in lockdown. I suppose maybe that's been on my mind a little bit listening to your podcast through the week was just the unexpectedness of the context even listening to them. We've been having lots of dialogue back and forth about it, but suddenly there was this lens came in between me and the material right at the last minute where, oh, it's all happening in this different, quite surprising context. And it made me wonder if there was anything about the whole process apart from coronavirus that surprised you when you were engaging with it. I know you talked earlier about this unexpected gratitude in a way for people you disagree with, but was there anything else that was surprising about it for you as a long-term cooking recipe? The most surprising thing for me was that I emailed two famous poets and they both gave me permission to use their poems. And these were David White and Naomi Shihab Nye. And I was seriously not expecting them to say yes. I already had the recordings done, but I didn't think they would let me. And I got immediate replies. They were very enthusiastic and their generosity just blew me away. So a lot of the radio I've done, we haven't had to ask for permission to include music or text. And I wanted to do it, you know, in a way that wouldn't get anyone in trouble. (laughs) Anyway, they said yes. And that was exciting. What was the inclusion of poetry about for you as a perspective? Well, I've been doing radio a long time, and I have to credit my friend Emily Charles, who I've mostly produced things with, with including poetry and our mixes from the very beginning, and music as well. So this has been our style of production. She didn't work with me on this, but she has influenced me. And so it's collages of voices with very little of us to try to weave the story and just try to create the narrative with the voices of the people. I use music as a break or transition, and poetry can say things that more analytical voice can't capture. So I think that in this case, the David White poem was able to say, look, enough of this barrage of news and bad feeling about this and everything that we hear is so sort of traumatizing. Let's see what meditation can bring to this process of trying to engage with climate And the Naomi Shihab Nye poem, I thought, really captured meta and that experience, like a very intimate feeling of wanting to protect something important or someone important. So those two poems really worked in this piece, in the meditation piece. I had poetry for the others, but those particular poets were not answering my emails. (laughs) And what about the meditation bells? When did that come in as an idea? I thought that was really beautiful, setting it in almost the physical experience of doing a practice. I was like, oh, I'm not just listening to another podcast or another bit of media to entertain me while I'm cooking or something. It was like, oh, there's a mindfulness bell every so often that comes in. Oh, yeah. As a listener, if there's a lot of just voice, you can kind of tune it out. And so it does kind of bring you back or stop the passive way that you can get when you're listening or watching something. You can sort of drift off. And I think little noises sort of bring you back to what is happening in the audio. Sometimes they don't work. There were a couple of places where I was like, oh, this might just be disruptive, but I left it in anyway. Also in the wisdom piece, I put crackling fire under one of the interviews and I wasn't sure if people would know what it was because it sounds almost like rain or like crinkling plastic or something, (laughs) but I decided to leave it. I actually really like those touches and I also like the rain. Another part you had rain coming down. That was really beautiful. 
I was really delighted with the poems that you put in. I thought it was a really good touch. And just a little anecdote. I met Naomi Shihabdai when she was a reader at Ledbury Poetry Festival, which is near Adistana. And chatting to her, I think it was Vidyatara that said to her, oh, we use your poem kindness a lot in our Buddhist movement. People read it a lot. And she was really, really pleased. So I don't know whether she would have put those two things together, but we had a little conversation about Tri Ratna and Buddhist movements and kindness. And it was really nice. I wouldn't be surprised if she did put them together because she responded to me so quickly and I put a link to the Buddhist Center online in the email so she might have recognized it. Well, it's been a very lovely way to draw Earth Week, Earth Day. I was going to say to close, but of course we're not really. It's just passing into another phase of awareness with all those issues. But it's been very good to mark it this week. I haven't been sure sometimes whether marking or celebrating was what we were doing. The language of the Earth Day website is very optimistic, very practical, as in a way it probably should be, very hopeful. It's been good to tend to all parts of it this week through the podcasts and through the conversations. So I'd like to thank you first, Stacey, for taking part today. You've been one of the people in our team who's been helping keep this subject very much alive in our awareness in terms of everyone's work. Delighted to be here and really great to be part of this conversation and to be finally getting to listen to Mary's podcasts online after our, feels like our conversations in the distant past now. You know, it's just wonderful to see a project like this come, come to fruition. So thank you, Mary. And to you too, Parami, thanks for coming from the Transcendental Flat, the Transcendental High Flats in Glasgow, floating above in a carbon neutral zone of your own. Yeah, really enjoying the fact that the air is very clear at the moment, at least in part because there are no planes landing in Glasgow Airport or there's two a day or something landing in Glasgow Airport because of COVID-19. So one little advantage of that is that the air is beautifully clear and the hills are very present for me at the moment. And thanks very much, Mary. That was really enjoyable to have that chat and really enjoyable to hear the podcast. Well done. Yes, yes. Well done indeed, Mary. Thanks so much for putting in all of that effort over such a long, sustained period of time. It's kind of amazing, isn't it, what it takes to make these things? And I think the biggest ingredient is love and just a sort of deep kindness of your own, giving your time and energy and heart to all that. So thank you. Well, it was fun and I appreciated the chance to do it. And the chance to have this conversation, you are all famous on my iPod, you know. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, I hope everyone has enjoyed the podcasts. If you haven't had a chance to listen to them yet, I strongly recommend them. Very thought-provoking, immersive experience to listen to them, particularly if you can do them one after the other or take some space around them. I hope wherever you are that you're doing well. As Mary said at the start, we're aware that so many people have a quite strong experience of suffering at the moment, of challenge on all sorts of levels. We hope that some experience of community, some little flavour of yeah, what it's like just to hear kindly human voices talking about stuff that you care about. We hope that that helps in some measure and we're grateful for your continued support for us, just kind of keeping practice in mind as a community, keeping the Dharma to the fore of all these conversations. As Sadaisi he said, this is the start of our home retreat on the Brahma Viharas, Meditations on Love, beautifully led by Ratna Vandana. All week long, there'll be a question and answer session this Sunday. If you happen to be listening at the time of release, you can come and take part in. You can see the details for all of this at the buddhacenter.com slash toolkit. And you can subscribe to the Dharma Toolkit newsletter there and we'll keep you posted on the best of what's going on. You can meditate with us every day. You can hear more of these stories and voices most weekdays on the podcast. And we'll see you again soon for another episode. Bye for now.